Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, we uh, thank you for helping us get the equipment fixed and get that running uh, so that the online audience can watch us and that we can function and record and, and do everything we need to do. So thank you for helping us in that. And Father, as we study uh, how Satan infiltrates the church, give us wisdom to see what he does and see those tactics in real life, not only in our church, but on, in our families, in our personal relationships, in our businesses, because it's the same tactic. So give us wisdom tonight about spiritual warfare. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, we left off of uh, last time I spent time in the book of Acts, talking about how Satan, uh, one of his tactics is to infiltrate, and we looked at Acts 20 and spent some time there. So um, what I want to parse out here, I have other technical difficulties with this. Now, come on. Oh, well, you've got to plug it in. That's the problem. Okay, so I'm going to give you a list of things um, of how he infiltrates the church, okay? So we talked about from among your own, they will infiltrate, okay? So what we learn throughout all of Scripture is there's different ways to infiltrate the church. This was predicted by the Messiah in the parable of the mustard seed, and he planted the mustard seed and became a mustard tree, if you recall, and its branches were great and big, and then birds started coming into it, um, nesting in the branches. And obviously, in the parable of the, uh, the soils, the birds are identified with Satan and his fallen angels. Okay, So anytime you see birds in the context of this, um, it refers to Satan's emissaries. So when the mustard uh, tree grows large... That represents Christendom, that Christendom will grow very large, but inside, once it's large, it's harder, harder to control, and so the birds, Satan's emissaries, will end up nesting in the trees. And so that's the infiltration, and then we obviously have in the parable of the soils um, an example of different types of believers, uh, three of which are believers and one is a, an unbeliever. So if you remember in the parable of the soils, you have... Um, the first one, the seed falls on, on the road, and a bird comes and gets it and removes it. And so that's a, a, uh, an unbeliever, so no, no growth happened. The second, third, and fourth believers sprouted, okay? The seed sprouted, which indicates they had life. Uh, one of the seeds uh, grew up among thorns, and the thorns choked out the life of the, the individual. Messiah um, interprets that as the cares of this world. They're worldly believers, and because they're worldly believers, yes, they sprouted, sprouted life, but they're worldly. And that becomes part of uh, the Laodicean element. Then you have the other element where it, found, uh, it fell on rocky ground. And because it, it, it had rocks around it, it grew up fast. So it did produce life, but the rocks uh, prevented it from having a deep root. And therein lies the problem of an immature believer um, or a carnal believer and the problems they pose. The last one obviously fell on good soil, sprouted, produced uh, fruit and all that, and so that's a mature spiritual believer. 
So as you can see, even in his parables, Messiah is warning us that there's going to be different types of believers. There's going to be even tares among the wheat in another parable. And so you have all these categories of infiltration. So this is what we have to come to realize, is that not everybody in the church is on the same page. So first of all, you have false believers that are in the church, and these are people who pretend to be Christians that are not, and they're the tares among the wheat. Um, um, they're... If you remember the, the parable in Matthew 13, uh, a darnel grows up alongside a wheat. If you've ever seen a darnel with wheat, they're identical almost. You can't tell them apart unless you have close inspection um, because they're very, very identical. They look the same when they're growing up in the spring and the summertime. So when, what, what happens is when uh, harvest comes, the wheat will grow up and turn a golden brown, go from green to a golden brown, and then the wheat, because of the head, the stalk of it, will bend over with the heaviness of the wheat kernel that's in it. So they'll kind of lean over in submission and humbleness, and they have a color of gold. The darnel at harvest time turns a grayish, pale green uh, type of color, and the darnel sticks straight up. It doesn't bow. It sticks straight up. And the only time you can tell the difference between the two is at harvest time. Well, if you understand what harvest time means in the prophetic uh, scenario of Matthew 13, harvest time represents the last days. So what, he, what Messiah is saying is, as the church is going on, it's going to be very hard to distinguish between a darnel and a wheat. But as you get to the end of the age, harvest time, their colors will show through. That's how you could tell the difference between a darnel and a wheat is in the last days. So what you have to th keep that in mind is that we are in the last days and it should be, um, uh, you should have now the ability to spot those types of people um, as their true colors are showing now, again, you have to reserve all the other categories, but you reserve the category as well. That person may not be a believer, or that, that person may be an immature believer, or a worldly believer, or a carnal believer, or whatever. But you do reserve now the right to have the one category there now that possibly that person might be a Darnell and, uh, because of the color that it exposes. And again, you can't be 100% sure. That's the problem. You can't be 100% sure because you're not God and you can't see into the heart, but it's at least a category that you have to maintain. And, and again, people have, have asked me, what do you think the stats are of, in the church of uh, like real believers? I don't know. What do you think? Is it 50% are believers and the rest of them are not? Well, what, what percentage would you give based on what you see today on how much the church is truly real believers? 15% maybe? 10 maybe? No, no, uh, uh, all the churches in the world. Yeah. Uh, um. 4%, 5%, you even think it's 5%? What is your, I mean, what does your gut instinct say? I mean, you guys are coming up with some number, yeah. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. But are truly born again. With the way the church acts, I don't know. Some have estimated maybe 5% to 2%. That's not good. If that's the stat, if that's the stat, right, you know, then it's pretty sad. But that is exactly what is predicted. The church ends in apostasy. It doesn't end in the glorious uh, triumph of everyone saved. It ends with a remnant that is saved, a Philadelphia element, and the Smyrna element, the persecuted element, but the church ends in apostasy. And that apostasy can be, is, is made up of different types of people. Apostasy, can, uh, an unbeliever can apostatize, and they would be a tear, um, and they pretended all their time to be a believer, and then they've departed. But it, an unbeliever can commit apostasy as well. So it just depends on who you're dealing with. If an unbeliever apostatizes, well, okay. Thus, they were never saved to begin with. That's a possibility. But when a believer apostatizes, they lose rewards. They don't lose salvation. They lose rewards. So both groups can apostatize. Okay? Um, So Jesus said, broad is the road of destruction and many who find it. Narrow is the path and few who find that. And, and so therein lies where his, 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 him coming out, he doesn't give a percentage, but he says it's going to be very narrow in the ones that actually are really believers, okay? And then with the, the whole thing of the Matthew 13 parables, which I would admonish you to study, they really spell out how bad it really is during the mystery kingdom age of, of who's real and who isn't. And uh, so anyway... Um, you have that aspect. Then you have the other aspect of false teachers and false prophets. Now, the category of this, of infiltration, again, would represent the emissaries of Satan, the birds in the mustard tree, in the parable of the mustard seed. And uh, now here's the thing. False teachers and false prophets typically, typically are not saved. Okay? So the examples of that would be like Joseph Smith of the Mormons, uh, Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses, right? Um, uh, um, I'm just trying to think of all false religions. What's that? Yeah, Mary Baker Eddy. um, Those types of individuals, you know, those are clearly uh, not believers because they deny the essentials of the Christian faith. Okay, you can't deny the deity of the Messiah. You can't deny, you know, the virgin birth, that kind of stuff, the atonement. You can't deny that because if you deny those theological traits, you're not a believer. So um, denial of the incarnation, stuff like that, um, where Mormons like you know believe that. Jesus is half God and half man. It was sired by God the Father having sexual relations with Mary. Now, that's, that's an absolute false teaching, right? Or, or even the false teaching that Jesus um, came to earth and he lost all of his divinity and became just simply a man and then got his divinity back after he resurrected. Um, that's, that's a critical heresy. That's, that's false teaching right there. But yet, people follow Bethel all the time in Reading, and that's what Bill Johnson believes. 
So why do they flock to him? He's denying the deity of the Messiah. Um, I don't know. Good question. It, it, what you have up in Redding, California, is a cult. Flat out. You deny the incarnation, the, the, the kenosis uh, of the Messiah, where he didn't divest himself of any deity. He limited his use of it in submission to the Father. That's the kenosis in Philippians chapter 2. To deny the kenosis is to deny the incarnation. And if you deny the incarnation, you're not a believer. You have to believe in the incarnation. So therein lies some problems right there with Bethel, right? Okay, um, but then there can be believers who turn into false teachers and false prophets, okay? Let's say somebody gets saved at, you know, at VBS when they're 12 years old and they're on fire for God, and then through the course of time, they start ingesting false doctrine, and then they perpetrate that false doctrine out. So that person is a believer, but they're, um, they're giving false teachings out, right? And then a believer can even go so far and make false predictions that don't come true. Like, like for instance, Benny Hinn. Uh, or Kenneth Copeland, that, that made numerous, numerous predictions, and none of them have come true. I mean, Kenneth Copeland, the last prediction he said that God's going to bind, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19, and, and it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be taken away. Well, that's his classic word of faith mentality. Word of faith is a cult. I'm sorry. It's a cult, word of faith. Benny Hinn's part of the word of faith movement, okay? And so is Kenneth Copeland and all the other uh, people in that group. Now, here's the thing. They can be saved because they maybe got saved when they were young and generally expressed that faith. And once you're saved, you're saved. Because the, the way the, the Greek is formed in John 3, 16, he who believes has eternal life. If you believe, then you get eternal life. Okay, that's it. So they then go into error and they become a false teacher, yet they are still a believer. So what ends up happening to them? They lose temporal blessings, spiritual blessings, not material, because a lot of them are rich. And then they lose rewards in, at the Bema seat is the idea of dealing with a false teacher. Yeah, that's a believer. So like, for instance, uh, the teaching of modalism, isn't that something that would be considered false teaching yeah, modalism uh, uh, in, in reference to the Trinity, that's what he's talking about. Um, like T.D. Jakes is a modalist, big modalist. And people follow T.D. Jakes like, you know, he's God's gift to mankind. And you don't understand that T.D. Jakes denies the Trinity. Well, what is modalism? Mo modalism believes that God basically is one God, and all he does is put on different masks to play the part of the Father, to play the part of the Son, and play the part of the Holy Spirit. So he goes into different modes. That's where the term modalism comes from. He goes in different modes. So it's like he's an actor, and he's going to put on the face of the Son, face of the Holy Spirit, face of the Father. That is classic heresy, classic false doctrine. T.D. Jakes believes that. So that is a denial of the Trinity, where we believe God is one in essence, a nature or being, but revealed in three identities or persons that are formed and completed within the Godhead. So you have to, that's modalism. So like T.D. Jakes is a classic false teacher because he denies the Trinity. Let me ask you this. If you, can, if you deny the Trinity, are you a believer? 
Can you be a believer and deny the Trinity? So what does that tell you? See, when I, that's what I'm saying. Theologically, when you deny the essentials, the Trinity, the deity of the Messiah, the atonement of the Messiah, right? The virgin birth, the incarnation, those types of things, that's primary doctrines. You cannot be a believer if you deny that. Now, here's what I would say. Is that required for salvation? No. But it would be the, what would happen if you did get saved, you would accept the doctrine of the Trinity, Okay, because what in the gospel, what you're presenting to people, you're not given Trinitarian statements. You're in the gospel, you're presenting Jesus as God, right? That died on a cross for your sins. If that person got saved, then they would naturally accept the incarnation, the Trinity, all those other things, because they don't know about the, the incarnation. They would be told that last. That's not that's not in your gospel presentation, the incarnation, right? But it, it, would, it would naturally follow, okay, this is who you believed in and this is what the Bible says. That would be a natural acceptance of that. Trinity, incarnation, second coming, uh, heaven, all that stuff, right? So when you see these people, they have infiltrated. So T.D. Jakes, like that, has infiltrated. Kenneth Copeland has infiltrated, right? Benny Hinn has infiltrated. Even though Benny Hinn, let me ask you this, Benny Hinn has come out and really, he, Benny Hinn has been exposed by his uh, uh, nephew. Um, I can't remember his first name. Anyways, it's Benny's nephew, and he totally exposed what Benny Hinn was doing. I mean, bad. And Benny actually came out and repented of his word of faith theology. Did you know that? He, re- he came out and repented of it and said it was wrong. Now, again, I don't know what Benny's up to, but he did say he recanted of that. But, um, you know, I don't know where he stands. I haven't heard anything from Benny in a long time, but he, he came out and repented of his word of faith theology. I don't know if he's still predicting things. I don't know if he's still doing those kinds of things, but he did repent of that. So that's interesting. Now, okay, again, Benny Hen could be saved, but because of all the shenanigans he's been pulling, he's lost rewards. Um, but it's interesting that he came out and repented. We'll see if, that, if, that even, if that's real or if that was just words or not. Okay, so you have those people infiltrating the church. Okay, so here's what happens. When a believer gives out false doctrine, it's sometimes done unknowingly, ignorantly, because of a lack of study, a lack of understanding, or it's done intentionally, okay? Now let's take the individual that teaches false doctrine ignorantly. What happens with that individual, they too lose rewards because if they're teaching, James says you have a more stricter judgment if you're teaching and you ignorantly go out. Now what a person can do is you have to learn, you have to grow, and God understands that in your teaching. The key in all of that is that you correct your errors, you correct your errors when you've, you messed up, right? Okay. And you stop teaching that. Once you figure something out, once it was revealed to you, hey, man, that's the wrong thought, man. Okay, so then you correct it and basically teach the correct thing, and that would be a form of repentance. Okay, so that happens. Pastors don't know anything a lot about a certain subject. They get up in front of everybody, and they teach the wrong thing. Okay? That could go with uh, soteriology in Calvinism or Arminianism, and they, you know, they're just following what their denomination teaches or something like that, right? 
Okay. <clears throat> but the key is, when they get revealed right information, they are supposed to adjust to the right information. They must change their views to come under the authority of what Scripture is really saying instead of being under the authority of a denomination or the authority of the elder board. Because that's what's happening to a lot of pastors. They simply teach from fear of man rather than the fear of Scripture. And so they, well, this, I can't go outside the denomination. I can't go outside of what the elders say. I can't go outside of this. And so what happens is, they teach a wrong doctrine, partly ignorance, but partly a fear of man. And this won't do it. So you have that aspect. Then you have the one that just goes hog wild into it. Okay? They, they, they like it. They like the false doctrine. And then they want to exp uh, teach it to other people. Now, let me ask you this. Why in the world would anybody be suckered in to false doctrine and then be pumped up to teach it. You got it. You, you got it. You have to understand that many people in the pulpit are there because whatever they're teaching earns them money, earns them fame, earns them power, okay? That's why they don't teach, you know, the truth many times. They gravitate to what makes uh, people feel good and tickles their ears, even though it's a false doctrine, like white privilege or getting up and having everybody apologize for their whiteness or whatever. That, that why would it, why would pastors do that? Because they're 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 going with the flow of the world, and they want to fit into the world, and hence they're giving false doctrine, which is nothing but uh, flat out Marxism, right? Um, so they do that, and behind it is an advantage. Here's what you have to understand about false doctrine and apostasy. And I was talking to, to Lee Brainerd about this today. He said something very interesting, and it's true. He said, Brandon, the reason people go into false doctrine and they know it's false is because the false doctrine offers them something. It gives them some type of benefit, some type of reward that they're looking for, and that's why they, they assume it, even though they know better than that. And therein lies some of the roots of apostasy among leaders, okay? So one of, what, what are the things... So Al Mohler, as an example, um, comes out and says that uh, as long as you don't practice your homosexuality... Uh, then you're fine. Now, is, is there something wrong with that? And he said he repented, and I showed you the, the film, I think, a while back. Uh, he had repented of his view that people can, that it's wrong to have homosexual desires. He's now saying that's okay to have homosexual desires or lesbian desires as long as you don't act them out. What's the problem with that? Right? What did, what did Jesus say about lust in general? If you look on someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He was telling the Pharisees, because the Pharisees only had an outward view of the law. Right? I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, but you do it a thousand times every time you look at lust with somebody. That's his point to them, right? That it's not just external, it's internal. 
okay? So the argument Al Mohler is making is a pharisaical argument. And the argument he's making, as long as you don't practice it physically, then you're okay. So you can be, you can have homosexual desires, homosexual orientation, homosexual sexuality, um, as long as you don't practice it. That's a Pharisee argument. Because Jesus not, not only doesn't want you to practice it outwardly, he doesn't want you practicing it inwardly either. Your desires must be aligned with Scripture, not just your outside actions. But now here's the question. Why would somebody that knows better then drift to that? It's all that stuff. The culture is going this way. Okay? The culture is going to, basically, 54% of Christians approve of homosexual marriage. He sees the culture going that way and apparently doesn't have a, a spine or a backbone enough to continue to stand against the culture. Now he's going with the culture. And see, that's one step in approval of homosexual desires and lesbian desires. You, you allow that, then you'll get this. Now you have people in the SBC saying that they're gay and they're married and have kids even though they're gay. Even though they have gay desires. As long as they don't practice it. And so they, have, they get married and have kids. Let me ask you this. What kind of husband would that be, ladies, if your husband told you, I'm married to you and, and we're going to have kids, but I'm gay? <laughs> Do you see where I'm going with this? But see, that's okay now in the upper echelon of the SBC. That's what they're saying. And then they're also giving the thing, well, if you're gay, um, then you need to be, live a celibate life, but as long as you don't practice it, because you, still, you can still have the homosexual desires. Dude, that is so wrong, so backwards. I mean, Philip Lee comes to our church now. He would never advocate something like that. He, he says that's of the devil, Right? Because you, you want to free the person, not only externally, but you have to free the person internally out of that. God wouldn't want them, and just the same as a heterosexual desire. You know, if you had heterosexual desires and you're lusting after everybody, God doesn't want that either. That needs to stop too, right? Our desires have to be formed according to biblical morality. Okay, but see, this is where false teachers come in. So Al Mohler has now put himself in the category of a false teacher on that subject. And I, I truly believe Al Mohler was saved, but, but now he's become a false teacher on that subject. And this is the nature of apostasy. Um, and, and look, don't get me wrong. This is not about like tertiary issues, secondary issues of debate on whether or not the rapture's pre-trib, mid-trib, or whatever. That's not what we're talking about, where there can be good debate. We're talking about black and white issues, Okay. And now you have, what, what else is happening with the pastors? The new thing with the pastors is saying, well, we are in support of pro-choice. Yes. And the argument that's being made is, is, is ignoring the murder of the baby, but the argument is that, well, this poor woman... You're going to send her into poverty. You're going to ruin her life because she can't, you know, get out of the hole that she's dug in. 
and you've sentenced her to a life of economic uh, disaster because she uh, has a baby and she's too young. She's not going to be able to go to college. She's not going to have a career, yada, yada, yada. So they're making the argument that being pro-life is being pro-life towards the woman who has made a serious mistake. And that pro-life would be that you would want to support her being able to get out of the hole that she's in and keep her life going in the right direction by allowing her to have an abortion. That's their argument. Are you following me? That is so satanic, I don't know where to begin. This is removing all consequences of bad behavior, right? And so these pastors who are saying that are saying, yeah, she doesn't have to pay the consequences of a bad mistake. She can just go on and kill a baby and then move on with her life. This is demonic. But now the churches are becoming like this. You watch. It's catching on. I'm telling you, you're going to have churches outright um, be pro-abortion because of that. It's one more step into being, well, let's just kill babies. Because that's what, in essence, it is. Let me ask you this. Young girl gets pregnant. Does that mean that it's the end of their life? Not at all. I have hundreds and, and, and people I know that got themselves out of that and made a wonderful life and a wonderful life for the child and did great and recovered and got back on their feet, went to school, did the whole nine yards, everything. Do not feed me the lie that you can't dig yourself out of that hole with God's help. That's insane. But see, the pastors don't want you to make that argument. But it's, it's a lie that she, oh, she can't dig herself, God can't help her. That's, that's insane. God can dig you out of any hole that you get yourself into, and you'll get a new life. He's done that for the biblical characters. Come on, man. So, but this is what they're trying to do. It's an emotional argument. It's, well, you know, she, you're going to ruin her life, Brandon, by forcing her to have a baby. Uh, a no, 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 sorry. It ain't the baby's fault, number one. And she can still have a good life. And people can support her. Don't buy it. But again, what is that? It's caving into the culture of apostasy. Okay, that's what's happening. The next one, a Jezebel person. Now we talked briefly about this um, a couple nights, uh, a couple Wednesday nights before this. But let me talk to you about a Jezebel person. A Jezebel person could be a guy or a girl, okay? Typically, it's a woman. Uh, There was a woman that did this to the church of Thyatira, and Messiah calls her Jezebel. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And and what she had done is infiltrate, and she had seduced the servants. She was in a teaching role, and she had seduced Messiah's servants to commit idolatry and sexual immorality, okay? Okay? Now, when you see that today, it won't be like a crass idolatry of like sticking an idol or something like that uh, in front of everybody. It will be a more metaphysical idol, okay? It'll be something on a spiritual level that, that people make into an idol, 
like a certain teaching or a certain book or a certain personality or something like that that they make into a person, uh, an idol. And then to commit sexual immorality. Now, this is interesting. Wrapped around the person of the Jezebel, wrapped around them is always sexual immorality. It always is around them for some reason. There's always hints of this going around them. And, and that's why they're so dangerous, very, very dangerous, okay? So what ends up happening with Jezebel, and you remember Jezebel herself, the wife of Ahab, brought in false idolatry into, the, uh, into Israel, and she was surrounded um, by eunuchs, spiritual eunuchs. We talked about that. And spiritual, well, sorry, real eunuchs, but a, a Jezebel today will be surrounded by spiritual eunuchs. Okay, so we talked about that. Spiritual eunuchs means they don't have any backbone. They, don't have, they, they can't confront evil. They can't speak the truth. They're afraid, and they just go along with the Jezebel, right? Okay, then they typically have a passive husband, and that's Ahab, okay? So where was the husband of the Jezebel entering into Thyatira? We don't know because he was typic- they're typically passive. They let their wives get out of control. That's what t- tends to happen, Okay. So then what, what the Jezebel does is wants to get to the top, wants to get to the top layer of authority, power, control within the church, okay? They will also do this in a business. If you have a Jezebel in your business, they will do the same thing, okay? They will go all the way to the top and try to uh, seize power. And once they're at the top, they make friends and they get coalitions, Right? And then they form that coalition against you. That happens in churches, that happens in business, it happens in families. We talked about that, okay? But what, what you have to see through the Jezebel is that the minute you see the Jezebel, you must target the Jezebel and work your way to getting them out of there immediately. Because they, the longer they stay, the worse they will affect you and everyone around you, Okay? They are cancers. They are like leaven. And they're there to disrupt things and create a posse for their own glory and to steal glory from God. Okay? Jezebel wants to be at the top. And because of that that desire to be on top, she has a problem with their own glory. They want to be seen in front of people. They want to be known for who they are. They want to be celebrated. They want to be seen as a hero. And um, that individual is very wicked, okay? These are the people that stab you in the back. These are the people that don't mind driving a knife as deep into your heart as they possibly can to inflict the most pain to you, okay? They are out to destroy you. That's the real intent. Yes, Wyatt. Um, the denominations uh, that reject First Timothy's and uh, Paul's writings on women in the church, would those denominational churches be examples of Jezebel churches? Possibly. Not all of them, but possibly. Obviously, they're in violation of that scripture, right? So that's a big mistake. There's no such thing as women pastors. It cannot happen. And Paul's argumentation has to do with the creation argument, not a, not, a, not a knowledge or time capsule argument. He makes it from Genesis. 
Adam was created first, so he has spiritual authority, and two, Eve was deceived. That's his two arguments come from Genesis. That's beyond any dispensation. So what, we, what he's pointing out is a good point. It lends itself to the Jezebel when that's allowed. Because if the woman who takes the position of pastor, okay, has no check on her, and if she truly has the spirit of Jezebel, she will lead that church into false doctrine at some point in time. Okay? She will. Because that's what a Jezebel spirit does. It introduces idolatry, false doctrine, and then it will introduce sexual immorality. So at, at, some, at some point, if the spirit is with that woman and she's allowed it to happen, she will be up there teaching false doctrine at some point in time. Um, now I'm not saying that's a guarantee. It just means if the person has a Jezebel spirit. It doesn't mean that every woman that, that takes the, the position of pastor, which they shouldn't, uh, turns into a Jezebel. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it certainly opens the door for that to happen. And that is exactly what the Jezebel spirit wants. It wants female leadership above the hierarchy of male leadership in the church. Again, you're not going to get past it, even in your own home. If you have the marriage upside down and the man's not the leader and the woman is, you're jacked up. Okay? It just, I'm just going to put it out there. You're going to be jacked up. It really turns the house upside down. And the kids see it, and they will rebel over the misauthority uh, misauthority in your home, and they will be rebellious towards authority because they're seeing rebellion in the very home of authority. They get jacked up too. Okay, it's a big deal. But Jezebel undermines authority. Jezebel attacks the authority, wants to take the authority down. So who was Jezebel attacking? Do you remember? Who was the spiritual authority that was confronting her? Elijah. Okay, Elijah's God's man. Okay? Elijah returns before the tribulation. He comes back to, to minister to Israel, right? According to the Italian prophet Malachi. And so he, um, he's a big force. So she's coming up against Elijah to take him out. She's wanting to take Elijah out. Tries to, all the, the, the prophets of Baal come out, and what happens? They're smoked by him, right? He, he kills all of them. He kills all of them after the test at Mount Carmel. Remember that? He kills them all. He smokes them. He's not even afraid, but, he's, but then she puts fear into his, his, his mind, and he has to run. You remember that? How could one individual put fear into the prophet Elijah after he just slew a bunch of Baal priests? How's that possible? You ever answered that question? Why is Elijah not afraid to take on and kill the prophets of Baal, which are men, but he's afraid to take her on, and he runs from her? Any idea? Again, I want you to think about the spirit of Jezebel. Why is he afraid of one woman and not hundreds of men? That bother you? It bothers me. But you, you should realize that there's something bigger there. Uh, he's afraid of one woman 
and not a, hundreds of men. It's the spirit that accompanies Jezebel. Does that make sense? It's not Jezebel herself. It's the spirit that accompanies her. What spirit? A satanic spirit. That's what makes Jezebel so dangerous is they have demonic powers and satanic powers along with them in doing what they're doing to you. It is demonic to the core. You're dealing with creatures that are far more powerful than you. That's why Elijah's afraid and not afraid of a hundred men because he knows he's not dealing with a human. He knows he's dealing with spiritual creatures, fallen angels, demons, and even Satan himself. That kind of, of enemy is, is beyond any of us. So we have to have God for us in that sense. That's where Elijah loses you know, that, that faith in realizing, yes, you are dealing with a bigger opponent, a spiritual opponent, but he should have relied on God on that to, to overcome that because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Elijah should have known that. He didn't know it, but he didn't access it. So anyway, that's the idea of a Jezebel spirit. If you're willing, dealing with a Jezebel spirit, whether it's in your family, in your business, it typically is women, but it can be men, and they have demonic activity surrounding them, doing this to you, guiding them against you. That gets pretty tricky at some point. Now, the good news is you got God on your side, okay? And what God will do then is he will reveal the Jezebel spirit to you. He will reveal the person. He will reveal their activities. He will reveal what they're doing. And at that point, once he reveals something to you, you must act. Okay? You cannot drag your feet. Go ahead. Uh, we got an online question. It's uh, where does the Bible say that you can lose rewards? First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Yeah. That's probably the easiest one. And then we have one more. Uh, so I guess it's uh, what about Catholics? They believe all essentials, but they love to they love look to works and church hierarchy and adore Mary and men. I guess that's yes, right. Salvation. The problem with the Catholics, uh, if if a if a person is Catholic and they believe the the teachings of the Catholic Church, it is a works based salvation. So what we we say is they get the personhood of the Messiah correct. They understand that Jesus is the God-man, and that's true, they do believe that, but they foul up the work of the Messiah that he didn't pay for all their sins. Well, like I said, one of the essentials, uh, people, to be a believer is you have to believe in the 100% atonement of the Messiah, that he paid for it all. The Catholics do not believe they pay for it all. Now, you might have Catholics that say, I believe Jesus paid it all. Well, that's despite the teachings of Rome, okay? Because Rome t teaches that if you just say that salvation's by faith alone, you're condemned and anathematized because they believe it's believing in Jesus and good works, and those good works include the seven sacraments. You must do the seven sacraments to complete your salvation or at least maintain it. And if you don't, then you can lose your salvation. Yeah. So, <clears throat> hypothetically, 
if you were in a marriage with a Jezebel spirit person, we've talked about other family members and work and other outside, but how would one, we, we talk about boundaries. How do you, how do you, how does a spouse deal with a Jezebel spirit spouse? Well, that's a good question. How does, how does, what, what, what happens if you have a spouse that has a Jezebel spirit? Well, it means that, that at some point that, that spouse of yours has opened the door to the demonic at some point, okay? And that's how the, the demonic gets a foothold and then turns that person into a Jezebel spirit or uses the person to influence with a Jezebel spirit. If it's your spouse, then obviously um, you're gonna start noticing stuff about your spouse, what, what would I notice? The, the eagerness to manipulate you through lies. That's number one. The eagerness to manipulate you through lies. They're lying all the time, okay? Number two, the eagerness to uh, always be ahead of you and have authority over you. I don't care if, you're, you're, if it's a guy or a girl. If a guy, he will lord it over his spouse, or if it's a girl, they will lord it over their, their, their husband, and, and so that's another sign. The other sign is the person will start exhibiting weird demonic behavior, um, just things that are not normal. Um, they have weird demonic dreams. They see things. They smell things. Um, they hear things. And they will report to you those things that they hear. Well, some of those things that they're hearing, things that they're seeing, things that they're dreaming, things that they're smelling, are coming from demonic involvement with the person. So that if that's your spouse, you've got a big problem, okay? But look, I've had to deal with people like this in marriages. And the first thing you have to do is put some serious boundaries on. And if the person um, doesn't respond to the serious boundaries on them and repent of this and... Um, Get rid of the Jezebel spirit and close the gap or close the foothold that, that, the, that the demon is using in them, then you, you, you eventually have to move to physical separation because if that gap is not closed, you're talking about demon activity in your house and among your kids. That's no good. And that is a thing you do not play with. If a spouse has gotten involved in demonic activity, that is serious business. That means that spouse will open the door for your kids to be demonically harassed and for you to be demonically harassed. It is nothing to play with. And that's why, you know, we don't, it, you know, it's not like we're dealing with an attitude of pride and, oh, you know, we're working on that. No, 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 no. Demonic activity is a line in the sand. You draw it and you remove yourself. So if you see demonic activity, usually you will around the Jezebel spirit. People ignore it, and they don't think it's spiritual, but it is. And so the first thing I tell them to do, look, if that's truly happening in your home and the person won't repent, you need to do a physical separation at that point in time until that activity stops. Because if you're having demonic activity in your home, that's no good. And you won't, you'll be shocked, absolutely shocked, with how many Christians live with demonic activity happening in the home and they just ignore it and they think it's just part of spiritual warfare. Uh-uh. No, no, no. Spiritual warfare is different. 
When you have demonic manifestations, apparitions appearing in your home, things levitating, being cussed out in the closet or being cussed out in another room, things laughing at you, things moving, demonic dreams, sexual harassment dreams that are so real that you wake up from them in utter terror, okay? Or, or weird things happening with the kids. The kids are seeing things in the room. A, a black lamb is laying on the side of the bed. Uh, and a specter is sitting in the corner of the kid's room. Yeah, we're talking about Christians. Guys, if that stuff's happening to you, and one of your spouses is responsible, you get that spouse out of the house. Because they're bringing that in. And they're going to bring it to your kids. You don't play with that one. Just don't play. And, and so, Chris, it just depends on what, what degree. If it's starting out with just lying, and I can tell that, you know, there's uh, one-upping, and, and, and okay, I can deal with that with boundaries. But if I see demonic activity, I, I, game over. Game over. Um, so that's what, how you would deal with it. Uh, is you got to put serious boundaries on that kind of stuff. And um, hopefully they repent. If they don't repent then you, you have to think about physical separation at some point in time. And you may never have to marry, you may never be able to marry again because of in the physical separation, because Jesus didn't give demonic activity as an excuse for divorce. He only gave pornea as one. So um, that would mean you would have to be physically separate for the rest of your life and never remarry. Well, that's better than living with a demon. I'm, t- I'm telling you, it happens. It happens. So good question, Chris. I don't know if it answered everything, but in general. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we've talked about things being handed down through families. Yeah. Is this something that can be handed down through families and the person doesn't even know it? It's possible. It's possible. Um, you, 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 when we're talking about demonic activity, um, it could be a family heirloom that was passed on to you. Um, and it's passed on to your, from your grandpa, but then you look at it, and you're like, what is this thing? And you, when you start looking at it, it's an idol, right? Or something that's from the occult or something, like a, or someone you know, maybe has an, a, an Indian heritage, okay? Uh, my background, I uh, have Cherokee in me. I'm registered the Cherokee Nation. So a lot of, a lot of my family were into Indians, and they would they'd pass on to me like dream catchers and stuff like that. No, 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 no. You, you burn those dream catchers. You burn that stuff. That is occultic activity because the American Indians were just flat-out pagans, worshiping, you know, the sky and this and that. Um, that's animism. So, you know, even though you might have a background, don't take those articles I, I actually had to throw and burn some of them uh, uh, and get rid of them, even from my grandma, um, because I, I didn't realize the occultic aspects of the Cherokees and what that was getting passed down to me. So I got rid of them, actually. Um, and so things like that, Stephen, that, that's, that's one of the things. The other things is, is if some, a family member is messing with the occult, right? If um, grandma is a, a tarot card reader, that stuff will get passed on you know, or whatever, or psychic or necromancer. Um, I knew of an individual that uh, had demonic um, activities going on in her, in her life since she was five years old. And um, when I questioned and figure out where, where the entry point came, 
uh, finally got it whittled down to the time when her aunt played tarot cards with her when she was five years old. And that was the entry point. Now, this little girl, you know, had no idea of the occult, but the, the, uh, the aunt was playing tarot cards. But at that point, she got harassed all of her life by demonic activity. We're talking about free-floating apparitions, the whole nine yards, because of that one entry point. And so it can get passed on, and unknowingly. And it, that's why you don't deal with it, because it can affect kids. So if kids are involved, you get that person out of your house, because the demons will go right after the kids. Some reason, for some reason, and I don't know, in the spiritual realm, if one of the parents is messing with that, it opens the door for them to say, I have, a- I have access to the kids now, for some reason. And I don't know how to explain it, but it does. JD. Um, my, my brother is from, he was in Oregon, and, and um, he had like some witcher, wit, witcher with her all the time with him, with his house. But he always calls me to pray for him and stuff like that. And so I pray for him, and then, uh, then, then six Next, next six months, they call, pray, pray again. But anyway, so come Oregon, he comes here to Bakersfield, and um, and that that lady God has had get out of there. So, but he comes to my house, and and he comes to my house just one day to my house, and there's a lot of stuff in my house with faith and and Jesus and just good stuff that yeah. lives there. And um, he knows that I was. He goes to my house and, and then, uh, and then he, then he in and gets out there real quick. And then, and then he never coming back in my house. He comes into the door and they come in. I goes, no, I can't. I'm, I'll come out here. I'll talk you over here. He would not come talk to me. Won't come in, huh? House. And so I think, and I don't know my brother's it now. It's that was five years ago, and we don't know where he's at or what's going yeah. on with him. But um, I think maybe because. I am the Lord. He wouldn't come to my house. So is that, I'm right on that, right? I'm, Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a reason why. Um, number one is because the Holy Spirit indwells you. Yeah. And uh, what you'll see in the occult world is that's a power of God that they see in you. And they're very much afraid of that. Very much afraid. He really so, was. He really was. Yeah. He, and so you see that fear um, with that. I've heard of even witches. Um, discerning believers from unbelievers as well. And the fact that they say that um, in the spiritual realm, the believers have a glow about them uh, that unbelievers don't have. And they, know, they can actually see in the occult world who are real believers and who are not. And that would go to the sealing of the Holy Spirit, obviously. The sealing of the Holy Spirit would show that person's God's property. And then the whole occult world would know that. And that's probably what he's maybe sensing, at least. I know he did that. I think he's come... He's that way, that way, and that that way, which is with him too. Is yeah in there now. He went that yeah. way, so yeah, he went into the occult. Just pray for me, and then I pray for him. But then you I mean he comes back and wow, house, never going to my house again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They they will avoid it. It's just like you try to bring someone to church that has demonic activity. They will be the most agitated person you've ever seen. They won't be able to sit down. They won't be able to stand. Uh, they're always moving. They're agitated, and especially if the, the word of God's preached or praying, they can't take it, and they will run out. That's just my brother, just like that. Yeah, just like that. Very agitated. Yeah, it's the demons in them, uh, or at least uh, inside of them. 
Okay, um, and then lastly, it infiltrates the, the, the church through carnal, worldly, Laodicean believers, and these are part of the church, but he uses them to attack uh, us. Where'd my little clicker go? Let me, let me show you two things. Um, like I said, I was talking to Lee Brainerd. Um, he's, he's written a lot of books, um, and he had some good insight today. We were talking about apostasy and stuff like that. And um, he, I, I, we were talking about, isn't it funny, I go, these people that are apostatizing, Lee, that they're so sure that they're correct. And I said, it's like they read a little book on Amazon, and then all of a sudden, they're the, the expert, Right. And instead of going against scholarship of like men like John Walvert or people like that that have studied the Bible for like 40, 50 years, they come up against scholarship because they read a book on Amazon. And you know what he said to me? And I, I, I'm, I, I give him credit for this, and he's right. He says, Brandon, it's the most ignorant that are the most sure. I said, you know what, Lee? I said, you're exactly right. What I tend to see is people that are really hung up on these positions that have no basis in Scripture, they are the most ignorant people I have ever seen. But they're the most sure that their position's right. Why is that? Why do you think the most ignorant are the most sure? Because it's very common. I read a book. It's pride. You got it. It's pride. The person, because they're immature, like we're talking about carnal, worldly, Laodicean, that's all immature believers, right? That's all immature. Immature means I'm either worldly or I'm carnal and I'm ignorant. So they don't know. They haven't studied long enough. They haven't become spiritually mature like the Apostle Paul records. And their pride gets in the way of their learning and they want to one-up everybody in what they have just learned. And it's some odd, fringe type of teaching that really has no basis. It sounds good in a book, but when you put it up to scholarship and Greek and Hebrew and hermeneutics, it doesn't work. They don't care about that because their pride is making them think that they know more than everybody else. They read a book. Now, what he said to me, and I put it up there tonight, he says, he goes, my pastor used to say, Brandon, that my ignorance is fixable, but prejudice is impossible to fix. And I said, you're right. That pastor said the right thing. When, when people have these divergent views, okay, these apostate views, okay? Like Al Mohler coming out and saying that you can still have uh, homosexual desires and be okay, okay? Him saying that, okay? That's a prejudice. That's impossible to fix because he's not accurate. That's not true. It's, he's not saying that out of ignorance, like he doesn't know. He is a scholar, he is a scholar of 40, 50 years, and all of a sudden, you move to a prejudiced position? Well, you're not fixable at that point when you move to that. You're not teachable at that point. You have moved into a very uh, unbiblical, unauthoritative position. 
And it's one thing if you're a new believer and you're trying to learn and you're trying to grow and, okay, man, that's a good ignorance, right? But the ignorance is fixed by knowledge. And you get that knowledge and, okay, okay, and I'm moving along and I'm growing. But if you're stuck at prejudice, you've got a problem theologically. Because I can tell you this, people take positions in theology that have nothing to do with the scriptures, nothing. They will take positions of Calvinism because it makes them think they're smarter than everybody. And that's why they become Calvinists. And I've seen some of the most ignorant people, scripture-wise, I'm not talking about intelligence or anything, I'm talking about spiritually ignorant of the scriptures, gravitate to Calvinism. And that's not a position you would actually take if you knew the scriptures. But the person's ignorant, but what did it do? It gave them a one-up. Well, I know more than you. I, 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 it's so complicated, it takes a PhD to explain it. Well, I'm sorry, that's not how God works. God, God wrote the Bible at a fourth grade level. If you can't understand it at a fourth grade level, then it's a doctrine of man. And so they gravitate to Calvin and say, well, you know, uh, scholars agree. And uh, Really, because I, 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 here's the passage, let's deal with it. They won't deal with the passage. They say, well, other people agree. Well, what if those other people are wrong? Al Mohler was wrong. They're wrong. But they, they, because of spiritual pride, they have a prejudice because it makes them feel good. Well, I have something that no one else has. This is what I find out with, um, like I was talking about the other day about uh, conspiracy theories. Why, why are Christians attracted to conspiracy theories? Because it gives them a one-up. They know something that no one else knows. And now they're going to spring it on everybody else and show them how smart they are because they found a new thing that no one else has discovered. You know what that is? It's called Gnosticism. Secret knowledge that no one else has. And so, hey, I found this, and yet no one else has found this. No one else has reported this, but I found this. They're putting snake venom in the water. Remember that? Last, yet, last year? A chiropractor, one guy, came out and said that. And people believed him. They're putting snake venom in the water to kill us. Okay. One guy said that and people believed. But why? Because, oh, I heard they're putting snake venom in the water. It's a one-up. It's a I-know-more-than-you type of position, right? And so what ends up happening is that the carnal and worldly and Laodicean believers perpetrate false doctrine and fables because of their ignorance, they don't know the Bible. For goodness sakes, you know the polls. What is it? Uh, 43% of all the pastors, uh, only 43% have a biblical worldview. So 60-something else percent don't? What does that tell you about the congregations? If the pastor doesn't have a clue, if it's a fog up here, or so let me say it this way. If it's a mist up here with the pastor in the pulpit, it'll be a fog everyone, everywhere, everywhere out there. Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. No, neither will they. Right? It's a mist here, but it's a fog out there. But this is how Satan infiltrates the church. Okay, I got to take a break. Any other questions before we move? 
Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.